your Bibles, 1 Kings 1. 1 Kings 1. Um, in one sense, uh, we are continuing the biography of David, but in a very real sense, we are actually starting a brand new book. And, and that is important to, to understand, that First and Second Samuel were originally one book. We've divided them into two parts. And it ends with the foundation of the temple. And so later when First and Second Kings, which itself is, was originally one book, um, it, it, it doesn't begin with the temple. You know, so so if, if you were to do a story arc of Samuel, right, it opens up with the hope of a mother um, crying out for redemption. And it ends with the foundation of the temple built on the blood of the lamb uh, through the promised king and the hope of, of a perpetual king in Solomon. And then first Samuel opens up um, not with hope. It actually hopes with uh, it opens up with some some real uh, fear that things are going to fall apart. Uh, which is typical of of the book. So with that, 1 Kings 1, and I don't think we're going to read all 53 verses. So how about we, we, uh, we'll we read the first, you know, 10 verses or so, and then uh, we'll offer, uh, we'll deal with the text as we go. So you stand with me, reverence God's word. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and, and start reading. So the writer of 1 Kings writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 1. Now, King David was old and advancing years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms, that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel, and found Abishag the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king, and attended to him, but the king knew her not. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man. He was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest. And they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok, the priest, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shimei, and Ray, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all of his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the mighty men, or Solomon, his brothers. Go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask every time we open up your word, that you would transform us by your word, through your Son, by the power of your Spirit, for your kingdom and glory. So open our every being that we may understand and apply your text. May the decrease so that you can increase. Name yourself, we pray. Amen. Be seated. Uh, I'm going to put an image up on the screen and see if you can tell me at what point in American history, that's your hint, I want you to give me the year of the photo and the events. So... You ready for this, Lonnie? It's history. You ready? Oh, this is one of the greatest photos of American history. Are you sitting down? No, you don't. No, you don't. That's nothing to do. I'm going to go ahead and put it up there. All right. The prophet back there thinks he knows more than the rest of us here. I'm, all right. Here we go. It's the hanging chads of. 2000, yeah. That's the dude for Florida. Global warming 
wasn't it? No, that was 13 years later. Um, and uh, um, uh, but <laughs> you're just trying, so you're just trying. Well, if you need to Google right this, if you just Google uh, 2000 election Florida hanging chads, whatever it is, this guy was 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 the star, right? In terms of just photo imagery, I had this is my favorite one. But all of them, he has this ability that his eyes just are twice the size of human eyes, and they just but like all of them. One of them, he's got a a a, a, a um, not magnifying glass. Is that the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, boy, that makes me sound like a millennial, doesn't it? What are those things you old people use? But, you know, he's, he's you know, using this. So he's, his eyes even bigger. Tons of great pictures of this guy. Uh, when you start to fall asleep, Google this and you will be well entertained. Well, I, I remember 2000. I remember the elections. Really the first election I, I somewhat followed. Uh, the, the one four years later I got really into, but but this one, uh, I would have been in high school then, and we, we did a lot with uh, uh, my, my history teacher. We did a whole thing on debates, you know, are you on the Gore side or are you on the Bush side? And, and I actually found a third guy I liked, and now I regret that decision. But anyways, um, I, you know, I knew nothing about politics, uh, nor did half the people voting. But nevertheless, I, 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 uh, the first real presidential election I remember following and caring about and getting into the issues and stuff, and I remember when... Um, uh, coming to school the next day, we didn't know who our president was going to be. Now, this was back when we counted votes and you knew who won elections the day of. I know that was like so 2000, but, um, you know, this is back when that was the goal. And, and we, we didn't know who the next president was. I still remember one of my peers went up to the teacher and says, teacher, we, we didn't know if we were supposed to come in school today. She goes, well, I don't understand. Why, why wouldn't you come to school today? It's just a Wednesday. She goes, well, Mom said we shouldn't go to school. They're probably not even having school because we don't know who our president is. I won't let you sit on that for a little bit. I don't know if you, if you know how this works, but you have the election in November. The inauguration is, watch here, two months later in January, right? It's like two and a half months later. And that is so the transitional period can, can take place. So just because we didn't know who won the election in 2000 didn't mean we didn't have a president. We had a president, love him or hate him. We had a president at least through uh, the, the end of, of, of January. But one of the things that people became concerned with the 2000 election was instability. That, that, that whenever a vote uh, is, is that debated and that close and you're having to debate the legitimacy of hanging chads and all, all that. So I don't know how, how to understand all that sort of stuff. It goes beyond my theology degree. But, but, but that is a scary moment for any nation. The transition of power is very important. And one of the things that's made America unique is the peaceful transition of power from one party to another, from one leader to another. There's a, a great scene in the uh, Hamilton musical where uh, King Charles finds out that George Washington isn't going to run for a third term. And he says something like, I didn't know you could do that, right? I just assumed once you got power, you held on to it, didn't matter how many heads had a row. Well, America was very unique in that sense, but there have been times in our nation's history where, where that sense of security and peaceful transition wasn't always as secure as we might like it. 2000 is probably the one that comes to mind the most. In the ancient Near Eastern world, a time of transition from one king to another was a very dangerous time for everyone involved. The entire kingdom could be, uh, could, could be in real danger. Yes, in one hand, everyone should know who the next king is. That's not the way it always works. Because when you have a dying king, you have a weak kingdom. 
Think about it, that, that if, if the king is dying, can, can you really follow his orders? Is he able to give the orders? What authority does that king really have, right? Uh, and and, and so, so do you then trust the heir? Does he really have authority? How, th- th- these questions become very convoluted and complicated, and we see that here. David is dying, and, and so with that vacuum of power comes those, whatever their motivation is to seize on that power. Perhaps Adonijah's motivation is to secure his father's throne. If he doesn't step up to take the throne, someone worse will. Maybe if we give him the benefit of the doubt, that's his motivation. But as we see, that is not what happens in the end. Let's start here in verses 1 to 4 with David shivers. As first king opens, the greatest of Israel's kings is lying dead. What a way to begin the story, right? The story begins with the death of a king. And so this throws the entire narrative that that anything could happen. It really creates tension right at the beginning of the narrative. And and the great question that, that the writer is wanting the reader to ask is, who will replace David? And will they rise to the level of David? Well, in verse 1, we see that the picture of David is a man slowly dying. He's described as being old and advanced in age. And he, in fact, he, he couldn't get warm. This, of course, is a typical medical phenomenon for the elderly and sick. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you've, you've experienced that and seen that no amount of blankets can seem to, to, to keep uh, those in this situation warm. And one of the interesting things I found in studying this text is that dying kings, sick and dying kings is a common theme. Some are just sick and they heal or whatever. Some get sick and die. Some just die. But that is a theme you'll find throughout First and Second Kings. And scholars suggest that is a literary device. That is to say that, that the sick and dying kings is a picture, a literary device to, to portray Israel as a sick and dying nation. After all, it is in, within First and Second Kings that, the, it, it, that sickness turns into division. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And bit by bit, Israel will grow sick and die. Judah will later grow sick and die, just like their kings are portrayed. Now, there is an interesting and we could say bizarre solution to David's problem of warmth in verses 2 to 4. And that is, they, they, they have a beauty competition um, for a beautiful woman to come to, to, to try to warm him up. Now, that is bizarre for us, right? This is not, not how, how, how we think. One of the bizarre things is you can sort of get your head around, well, if someone's cold, right, uh, you, you can keep each other warm. Oh, okay. But, but why the beauty competition? What he needs is a big, burly, hairy man to keep him warm, right? Uh, I mean, come on, right? I mean, if you're stuck in the Antarctica and you had to choose, right, uh, you know, between, you know, uh, uh, this lady and... Someone who looks like he hasn't fully evolved, and I'm not an evolution guy. You want the guy who looks like he isn't fully evolved. That's, that's all I'm saying there. But well, why, why the beauty competition? Well, it is interesting, right? Verse 4 makes it clear this is not an intimate relationship. However, when you read it, it reads as if it's supposed to be one. And I actually think that is exactly how we're supposed to read it. It, it has innuendos in it. The problem is there is no ability or, or 
I don't know what other terms to use for those sort of innuendos. And that's on purpose. I think I can prove it to you, prove that I'm not fishing here. You'll notice that in verse 4, it says that the king knew her not. And that language knew uh, of knowing and, and, to, and to know someone is an innuendo for intimacy. Go back to Genesis. It's Adam and Eve. It's, it's, it's Cain and his wife. It's, it's Noah and, and his like all of them, right? Well, that word know is used throughout the narrative to say not only did David not know this woman, he didn't know a lot of things about his kingdom as he's lying, as he's laced it there. Go down to verse 11. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king? And David, our Lord, does not know it. You see it there? Go down to verse 18. And now behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord, the king, do not know it. One more, verse 27. Has this thing been brought about my lord, the king, and, he, and you have not told your servants who should sit on the throne and my lord, the king, after him? This theme of knowing that David doesn't know what is happening in his kingdom is a result of him not being able to know. The innuendo is on purpose because in the ancient world, one's, one's uh, 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 ability and intimacy was a picture of political power. Here he, he, he that, that is, that is uh, he's robbed of that. And that's not the word I want to use. But, but, but that inability shows a, a, a declining kingdom and a declining power. And so, so here he is, he lies shivering, and it is a, just a picture of a man dying. But he, of course, isn't just any man dying. He's the greatest king of Israel. And what a reminder that is for each and every one of us, isn't it? Death comes for us all. No matter how much power, power we have, no matter how close we are to Jesus, death comes for us all, and it is never pretty. The West has done a good job at sanitizing death, but it is ugly nonetheless. It is ugly, and as we see here, it is our enemy. If you were Israel, you would just assume to have David on the throne perpetually. But the enemy showed up. So we see David shivering, and then we see Adonijah scheming. Verses 5 to 10, which is where, where we concluded our reading. In typical ancient Near Eastern fashion, ambitious men try to usurp the throne while the king lies dying. This is typical, going all the way up to uh, colonial times, right? Um, if you study the, uh, the monarchy of England, for example, or Spain, or Holy Roman Empire, or whatever, this is the same pattern you're going to see. When power is, is centralized into a single individual, there will be plenty of people who'd rather have the power than not have the power. And that creates all kinds of, of difficulties. Well, in verse 5, Adonijah claims the throne for himself, and he has good reason to make this claim. Let's give him the benefit of doubt, at least at first. He is the legal heir to David's throne. Remember, Absalom has died. Adonijah is the second uh, born of David after Absalom. Um, and so he, by all right, would have been raised and groomed to become the next king. Um, and perhaps the reason he is 
doing this is to prevent instability by uh, prematurely taking the throne. Now, we could read it that he's just taken because he's a greedy man. I think that's legitimate reading. But if we want to give him the benefit of the doubt, he sees that David is dying. And, and as a result, that vacuum needs to be filled. Who else should feel it? And no doubt there are people around Adonijah saying, look, we know what's going to happen to, to your father. He essentially has no authority now. Why don't you go ahead and let people know you're the king? We can do all the ceremony, all the puff stuff, and we'll put it in all the papers and, and go ahead and assume the right of kingship. However, what we should know here, look at verse 5. It has a parallel. Adonijah, son of Hagith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. He prepared for himself chariots and horsemen, 50 men to run before him. Now, if you remember uh, your Bible in 2 Samuel, we read a story similar to this. This is parallels what Absalom did in 2 Samuel 15. And this Absalom got himself a chariot and horses. 50 men ran before him. What are they saying? The king is coming. These are heralds of the king. It's a parade. Behind us is the king. All hail to the king. Bow down to your king. David lies dying. Here is your king. And so immediately the reader is thinking, oh no, I've, I've read this story before, and that didn't end too well. Is Israel about to go into another civil war? And you'll notice in verse 6 that David, or Adonijah rather, looks like a king. He's described like David before him, like Absalom before him, like Saul before him, that he is a very handsome man. So he looks the part. He has the right credentials. He has the right titles. Why should we wait to crown him? And you'll notice in verse 79 that he doesn't merely sit upon the throne. He hosts his own coronation. Both the sons of Joab, remember Joab is sort of David's right-hand man, and, and not that David has a choice in it, and Abiathar is one of the high priests. They are there. These are, not, these are men of great influence. Uh, they have a big following on social media, really big on TikTok. I don't know if you knew that or not. And so what Adonijah does, verse 79, is he sacrifices sheep, oxen, and the fatted cow. Now, we've read this story before. But the 2 Samuel 15, 12, while Absalom was offering the sacrifice that he sent for Ahithophel, the, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilon. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people of Absalom kept increasing. And if you read the context there, what is Absalom doing? He is making all the sacrifices, and he is preparing to be crowned, and to crown himself king. There is an interesting detail here. I, I, make sure I'm not reading too much into this. Verse 9 uh, Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, fatted calf by the serpent's stone. Isn't that interesting detail? It just sort of sticks out there, isn't it? The serpent's stone. We're, we're given more detail. It's right beside Enrogel. Now, I couldn't tell you exactly where that is. Commentaries uh, have fun with all that stuff. That, that, that's not what interests me. That little detail about a serpent, I, I, again, help me if I'm reading into this, but I don't think that detail is accidental. Consider, for example, and, and I found this in one of the commentaries, that Adonijah is like Adam here. Think about it. The throne is like forbidden fruits. He is not to take of it. It's there to be taken, but he is not to take of it. He is seen, particularly made very evident later in verse 25, to be eating and drinking. And we've talked about that theme of food in, in the recent past. There is a serpent present there, the serpent stone. And later we'll see Solomon will later be taken to the primary water source that, that fuels Jerusalem. 
And that scene is very Edenic, right? Because in Jerusalem is the presence of God where water runs through the city. And it's a city up on a hill like Eden was top of a mountain. That's why you go up to Jerusalem. So I, I, don't, I, I don't think we're reading into this. This is another, in many ways, a retelling of the Genesis 3 narrative. That Adonijah wants to take the forbidden fruit for himself. He's going to exalt himself king, verse 5. And we always know how, how this goes, right? That whenever we do this, bad things happen. Well, give Adonijah some credit. His plan is a smart one. He garners popular support. Fifty people travel with him. Um, much in the same way that if you want to run for president, can I give you some advice? If you're sitting here and thinking about running for president in 2024, I'll give you some good advice. Unless anyone knows who you are, don't bother. Right? Uh, in fact, you'll find in the primary process, the number one question a candidate is asked, name recognition. Now, that name recognition could be bad if no one likes you. You know, I'd recommend gardening, okay? But if, if this is why you're seeing so many celebrities, or why you're seeing so many politicians go to the way of television and podcasting and book writing and a celebrity approach to politics because name recognition is important. And that seems to be what Adonijah is doing here. He's got 50 people going ahead of him, and they're doing all the interviews on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, and PBS. Right? Name recognition is, is going to be important. He's gardening support. He looks the part. We've, we, we've said that. I'm reminded again of, of another presidential campaign. In 1960, the very first uh, a presidential debate was aired on television. Kelly, as the Brits say, who we just, you know, showed up against in the World Cup. They thought they were better than us, but, but Tyler Adams said, not on my watch, Hoss. Anyway, so um, uh, here it was on the telly, and, and a survey showed that those who listened to the debate on the radio concluded a Vice President Richard Nixon won the debate. Those who watched the debate on television concluded Senator John F. Kennedy won the debate. What's the difference? One of those two guys is better looking. I'll let you decide which one it was. It wasn't the Quaker, okay? I'll tell you that. It wasn't the Quaker that looked better, right? But he looks the part, right? He, he looked the part. And finally, it's interesting, Adonijah doesn't just garner support. He publicly identifies his opponents. This is becoming a major problem in our world today, isn't it? Who you are against is as important as who and what you are for. So you'll see there, uh, go down to verse 10, right? This, he invited the king's son, the royal officials, the Judah, all that sort of verse 10. He did not invite Nathan the prophets. He did not invite Beniah or the mighty men or Solomon his brother. Now you may not know who all those people are, and that's fine. The point is to say, he's saying, my kingdom will look like this, not that. I mean, Adonijah is as political as, as you can find them. Well, let's move quickly to Bathsheba intercedes. Now, you'll notice there in verse 11, Nathan said to Bathsheba, so Nathan is the main power here, but Nathan, unlike when he confronted David about the Bathsheba narrative, Nathan doesn't directly confront David here. Rather, he uses his wife, or, or you could say he weaponizes Bathsheba, if you will, maybe a bit strong language, but, but I think it's fair to say that there is no better tool to convince a man to do anything but his wife. We can agree on that, right? Like, if, if we want dudes to do something around here, we don't need to go to the dudes. We could do that. It'd be a quicker way of doing it. But if we really want to make sure, you know, that they all show up, we go talk to their wives, right? And, and we, we get this. Men can be pretty hard-hearted, 
But a good wife can talk her husband into doing virtually anything. Think about it. Men, who else other than your wife would you carry their purse around? Anybody? You go to the mall. You, you want to find the husbands? Well, this may not be true anymore. Look to see the dudes carrying the purse. Now that I say that, that, that and the scratch that, that, that may not work, right? Uh, <laughs> oh boy, I about stepped in that one, right? Uh, we're not having communion tonight, are we? Does someone? How many men will help decorate, move furniture, or shop? Um, unless, of course, their wife asks them, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's a great meme out there that, I, I, that like women put together, and they thought they were being critical of men. It is a picture of a television on the floor, a like metal chair, and, and in the living room, and it says, all men are okay with this, right? And it's supposed to be critical of men. Men look at that and like, yeah, what's wrong with that, right? I mean, I, I got the World Cup on the telly, right? Watch, watch Tyler Adams go at it and see if Jesus Ferreira starts, you know, against Iran Tuesday, right? I got my telly, right? I got a chair to eat my venison in. What else you want in life, right? But a man who gets married, all of a sudden he is shopping in places he's never been to before, Right? I, 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 I like to tell young couples all the time because the bride one was always complaining. He just, he just doesn't seem to understand what a dishwasher is for. And I said, look, that will change the minute you're married. I promise. I promise. Women have a way to get men to do things they otherwise wouldn't. But Bathsheba makes two key arguments as she intercedes on Solomon's behalf to David. Verse 13 is the first one, and that is she wants David to remember the covenant he made. Go down to verse 13. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord the king... Swear to your servant, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me. He shall sit on my throne. Why then is Adonijah king? You see, it wasn't just that David had predetermined to give the throne to Solomon, but that God had elected Solomon to be king even over his older brothers. Out of that narrative of tragedy and death and murder and shame, God, we, we talked about this, this this morning, God brought mercy, God brought salvation, God brought a king. God was riding straight lines with crooked sticks. And then later... She makes a second argument, going down to verse 21, and that is, David has an obligation to keep them safe. Otherwise, verse 21, it will come to pass when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. That's a scary situation, isn't it? It's a very scary situation. One day, they were in of the royal household. Adonijah goes off and declares himself king like Absalom did. And they can read the tea leaves. If you're a king in the ancient world, you cannot bear to have anyone who has a claim to your throne off with their heads. Bathsheba knows exactly what Adonijah's rise to power means. And she's pleading with her husband to do something about it. And this reminds us, doesn't it, the story of Mephibosheth. Remember Saul's surviving son that David showed great kindness to? It's great kindness because you're not going to see that in the ancient world. Coming all the way up to colonial times and English royalty and all that. Well, that leads to verse 28 to 40. Solomon is anointed. 
And despite Adonijah's best effort, David secures Solomon's crown. I think we can look at this rather quickly. Verse 28 to 31, David reaffirms his covenant with Solomon Bathsheba. He says, yes, everything you've, you've told me, uh, Bathsheba, is true. Verse 32 to 37 is the crowning ceremony. Um, it first sounds um, private, uh, but it really is public. Verse 40 makes that. Let's, let's read that. Verse 32, King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. Remember, all those people were not welcome at Adonijah's shindig. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gion. Now that mule is interesting detail, isn't it? The mule was a royal animal. But it's, it's striking in light of the triumphal entry, isn't it? The son of David enters Jerusalem on a mule, a donkey. That sounds familiar. If you all think of what it is, let me know later. Verse 34, let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. Shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaiah the son of Jehoiada answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king say so. And the Lord has been with my Lord, the king. Even so, may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. Uh, somewhat prophetic there. So Solomon is anointed. And what is, what is, it looks private, it's really a public, right? They're blowing the trumpet, there's a lot of people there. Again, you go down verse 40 for, the, for that evidence. Gion is the source, the water, main water source for Jerusalem, so it's the Edenic image. And Solomon literally sits on David's throne. Adonijah has to flee. And there he, he sits up his kingdom. Solomon has the benefits of sitting on the Davidic throne, literally sitting on the throne. And verse 38 to 40 is the official ceremony. So you see it there. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on David, King David's mule and brought him to Gion. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent, anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet, and all the people, there it is, all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people, there it is again, went up after him, playing on pipes, rejoicing with great joy, that the earth was split by their noise. Of course, you can't take that literally, right? The whole point is they made a whole bunch of ruckus. Well, this is essentially the crowning of Solomon. He has now officially been made king by order of the king. That's the difference. Adonijah didn't have the order of the king. He exalted himself. Solomon was exalted by the king of Israel himself. Can I just a, just a brief footnote here on ceremonies? Uh, uh, their importance, I think, is made evident here. Um, Solomon is given ceremony, ritual. And, and it's designed to be the, the Jewish ceremony for a king. We, we, we do this now. Like, like, you know, we could have a president without the ceremony of the inauguration, right? We understand that. Um, in fact, some presidents have been inaugurated on January 20th behind closed doors. But because I think if it lands on a Sunday, they will then do the inauguration on Monday. Don't quote me on that. Um, so my, my brother's birthday is January 21st. Um, Reagan, President Reagan, already been inaugurated president, but the ceremony inauguration was on the 21st. Um, so my mother was giving birth during, during all that. So that makes him officially a Reagan baby, I guess. Uh, political ceremonies are important. Marriage ceremonies are important. Um, when Obergefell uh, was passed by the oligarchs of the Supreme Court, a lot of my pastor friends says, I won't do weddings anymore. I, I, I'm not there yet. And that day may come at some point. I don't know. But 
But that marriage ceremony is important. And, and it's important that it is a religious ceremony, not a legal ceremony, though that has its role. Religious ceremony. Educational ceremonies, graduations. I want to bet many of you graduated college, right? And you try to talk your parents into not doing the uh, graduation ceremony, right? I did, right? I did a high school thing, like, all right, whatever. Went the boys, didn't make a lot of friends, didn't want to make a lot of friends. I wanted a degree, and I wanted to marry that girl from Carroll County. That's all I cared about when I went the boys, right? Love my my alumni, all that sort of stuff. I made good friends, but I couldn't care less if if I graduated. When I finished with my third degree, THM, you know, I, I, I thought... This is like my fourth time around walking across the stage. I don't want to do this. What's my mother and father doing? Oh, yes, you are, right? You know, yes, ma'am, right? You know, I'll I'll do that and I'll carry your purse. But, you know, those educational ceremonies are important, right? Worship ceremonies are important. If memory serves me right, you all almost forgot to do communion this morning, didn't you? Good thing I reminded y'all. Those rituals are important. The ceremonies are important. But what all this means is that there can be no doubt who the real king of Israel is. Let's, let's move quickly. Uh, my goodness, even when I have extra time, I take it. Uh, Adonijah fears. Let me just real uh, quickly, verse 41 to 53. When Adonijah hears that Solomon has been crowned king by the order of the king, he gets scarred, right? He gets scarred real quick. For the same reason Bathsheba and Solomon were scarred, right? Because he knows that that. Solomon has the advantage that David wills this. Adonijah hoped that David wouldn't know about it because David can't know anymore. And so if he crowns himself king, that will make him king. And Solomon will fear him. And now, now, Solomon has officially been crowned king and has been recognized as king. So the... the, the, to skip through, there's, there's a lot going on here. Um, verse 49 to 53, to save their skin, Adonijah comes and um, he and his supporters come and they grovel before the, the new king of Israel. And in verse 51, 53, he swears his allegiance to his half-brother, Solomon. And in verse 52, Solomon promises to protect Adonijah on the condition that Adonijah never conspires against him. And that's how the story ends. Solomon sitting on the throne... And his kingship is secure. Let me make just a few points of application um, out of this text. It's a pretty straightforward story uh, with, with all the parts and everything else. But let me make just a few points. And we'll call it a night. Number one, uh, God's call. God's call. Scripture is clear that the calling of God is not something that can be forced or ought to be pursued out of selfish ambition. Adonijah put himself forward without the approval or the calling of God. To be the king of Israel was supposed to be by divine appointment, not self-appointment. He declares himself king, something God did not. In In ancient Israel, the king of Israel was a divine call. Remember that Saul was anointed by Samuel the prophet. Later, David was anointed by Samuel the prophet. You remember that that in David's account, everyone who looked like the king came forward. And Samuel says, no, God hasn't called them. God hasn't anointed them to be king. There must be another. And in comes a shepherd out of Bethlehem. He was called by God. 
And that calling means they may not look like they, that, that they are the right uh, candidate. But to have the calling of God is, is so important in this narrative. Solomon was appointed by God, or it was appointed by God, anointed by Nathan the prophet here in this text. As a calling, Adonijah called himself. And those who are called are therefore held to a higher standard. Just go back and read the story of David. Look at what we saw this morning. The judgment of God fell upon Israel because the anointed one failed. That's a high standard, a high standard, and rightly so. But those who seek the calling of God for their own glory will end up harming those around them. Again, look at the story of David this morning, but really look at Adonijah. Look at Absalom before him. Adonijah should be a warning to those who confuse skills with calling. Knowing the Bible well is not a call. Being beloved by the local church is not a call. Administrative skills, years of faithful service, though good and right, is not the same as a calling. The call of God comes upon a man when he is gripped by that calling, and it is confirmed by the local church. So I'll just give you some advice. If anyone ever comes and says, I feel called to go in the ministry, can I just give you one simple question to ask that person, okay? The question will be, can you see yourself being content doing anything other than that? If the answer is yes, there's a high probability they are not called. The only thing that will keep you pursuing the call of God is the call of God. And I've shared with you before in my years at seminary and voice and all that, how few of those men are still in ministry. And I don't know if they were called or not. I don't know. But it's a tragic tale that is all too common. Those who start churches without prior support or those who hop into ministry with an axe to grind are destructive. Those motivated by their egos, money, or are pressured by those around them can do great harm. Can you imagine, just pause for a minute, what if Adonijah had become king? He would have been glorified. Israel would have suffered. Secondly, God's will. Just as God called Isaac over Ishmael, just as God called Jacob over Esau, so God called Solomon over Adonijah. Isaac is the younger. Jacob is the younger. Solomon is the younger. Nothing can explain this but the will and the election of God. Throughout Scripture, the younger brother often supersedes the older despite ancient Near Eastern customs. This is because God delights in elevating the lowly and demonstrating his sovereignty over the nations. Along the way, in our reading of the biography of David, there have been, been many people to try to take David's throne from Saul to Absalom to Adonijah being the most prominent. We could add to that the Philistines, the Moabites, and others. But God sovereignly and providentially raised David up to be the king of Israel. And then providentially and sovereignly chose Solomon, the younger, to be his heir. And nothing could or would thwart God's will. Often when we think about God's will, we think of it in the subjective. What is God's will for my life? And that is a good question. That's fine. We can explore that at a later time. So we want to know what is God's will? Should, should I change Careers, marry my fiance, move to another city, buy that house, go in the debt, make that investment, have more children, on and on and on it goes.
But often when God's will is addressed in the Bible, it is in the context of God's sovereign care. In this context, the assurance is that we are in God's will by the simple fact that God's will will be done in heaven or on earth as it is in heaven. Now, that doesn't mean that, 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 that uh, we can't disobey God, but ultimately, at the end of the day, we cannot thwart God's plan. We are at best Adonijah's when we are disobedient, thinking we could take our own road, thinking we could triumph over God himself. And God says that David may not know, but God does. And he will, he, he is in control. This is something we need to remember on election nights. Christians should be the last people to panic over a few votes. Remember this when you're obsessing about the culture wars. You're obsessing over politics or what is happening in our world today. God is sovereign and his will will be done. Thirdly, God's king. Adonijah only wanted to exalt himself. He may be motivated by patriotism, right? He may be motivated by self-confidence. After all, I'm sure he's been trained in, in what it takes to be a good king in the ancient Near Eastern world. He may have even been motivated by duty. There's a dirty word for today, right? When Queen Elizabeth died, we're not allowed to use the word duty anymore because we don't think in terms of duty. Right? I mean, when your parents age, why should you stop your life to take good care of them? Duty. But we're not allowed to say that because duty implies my self-interest isn't the first interest of the self. It implies that there are other things more important than me, and that is blasphemy. Well, that, that wasn't in my notes. That's free. But the language suggests in the text that his main motivation was that of pride. He takes the throne for himself. But the story of David is not that. The story of David, as we have described it, is it is a shepherd who would become king. It is a king, as we saw this morning, who would become shepherd. Remember that when he repents before God, he says, it's not right that the sheep suffer so. He finally realizes that he's not a king. He's... He's a divinely appointed shepherd. Adonijah doesn't want to be a shepherd. He doesn't want to be godly. He doesn't want to be humble. He doesn't want to be God's chosen. He just wants to be king. And so what we have here is the contrast between two kings. The one who would exalt himself and the one who is exalted by God himself. And this, of course, connects us to Christ himself who is described as the true and better Solomon, right? So the queen of the south who rises up in judgment this generation condemn it, Jesus says. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. But behold, one who is greater than Solomon is here. So here we, we get a picture of what is to come. Yes, we are excited about Solomon, this more humbled, weak, younger king who understand he's called to be wise. He is called to shepherd the people as the son of David. But we are waiting for one who is a true and better king. This is why the New Testament uses this language over and over again. Since now it's Christmas season, we've already forgot about Thanksgiving, we can read Luke 1. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will be king. Paul will write in 1 Timothy 1, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Or we can turn to uh, Revelation where uh, he is constantly referred to as king. 
Revelation 15, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true your ways, O King of the nations. By the way, that is a fulfillment of what the devil tried to take away from him. Bow down me and I'll give you the nations. Here in Revelation, we see he is the king of the nations. Chapter 17, they will make war on the lamb. The lamb will conquer them. For, by the way, how do lambs conquer? They, they conquer by sacrifice. They conquer by blood, right? Not with warfare, which is interesting detail there. He is Lord of Lords, King of Kings. One more, Revelation 19, 16. And on his robe and on his thigh, he was given a name. King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Now, I want you to notice the contrast between what it is we see in the New Testament with Christ and what it is we see here with 1 Kings 1. The question of 1 Kings 1 is, who will occupy the throne of David? That is to suggest that the throne is always in flux. At any moment, the wrong guy could occupy it. The wrong king, the wrong shepherd, the one who isn't anointed. And so we, if you keep reading through Kings, we said earlier... Solomon will begin to fade and die, and more will try to take his throne. Rehoboam will come, and through foolishness, the throne will be divided. And there, now you've got two kingdoms, and one after another, they are more foolish than the generation that came before them. The kingdom and its king, its throne, is sick and dying until the day comes when Christ, the one who claims to be the good shepherd, rides on a mule, a donkey, He enters into Jerusalem, not just as a shepherd, not just as a carpenter's kin, but as the son of David, the king, whose kingdom will know no end. Jesus is king. He rules upon an eternal throne. He has the calling of God. He is the will of God. He is the king. Let us bow down and worship him. Let's pray. Our Father, I ask that you would be kind.